Right, there I am. Good e- uh, hello, everybody. I don't know what time it is. Um, happy New Year. I forgot to say that yesterday. Happy New Year to everybody. Um, the, uh, the Zoom meeting, of course, I won't be hosting it because I'll be on a beach. But uh, sorry. All <laughs> uh, right. Sorry. Um, the uh, Terry in, uh, in Great Britain is going to host it. So uh, Zoom meeting is on for Friday, this Friday, if you want to join at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. I think I need to update the website with that info. Uh, so the Zoom meeting will resume until we get back. I think that's another two weeks. And uh, to restate the schedule, um, we will be back. I will be back here on the 17th of January, which is Tuesday. So we get back the 15th, which is a Sunday, and then we'll just get right back to our regular schedule uh, on the 17th of January. And again, we appreciate your understanding for giving us this break. Uh, And uh, so that's it, Zoom meeting and the 17th. With that, let's pray. Turn your Bibles first. Where are we going? First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 6. And uh, let's begin with prayer. Let's thank God for the time we have to hear His Word, to study His Word, to learn more about Him. In this case, to learn about what we're going to see today is contentment. Such a very important topic in the Word of God for us. And uh, so with humility and reverence, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father, our great God in heaven, you are holy, righteous, and just. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who has done an incredible sacrifice has performed an incredible sacrifice of himself so that we could confidently say that we are your children forever that we have eternal life and that we are with you and in him for all time forever we thank you father that through your love you have provided your son we thank you that you are by nature a giver and that you continue to give to us and provide to us for us in your magnificent way. And may we learn to be content, Father, as we study this word and in every day be content with what you give. And though we have uh, flesh within us which will seek for other things, our flesh will seek for more or less or different things. We ask, Father, that through your word and your spirit that we would be constantly reminded uh, and to pray to you daily to make sure that our minds are on the right place. And so we ask, Father, that through your word we would all be instructed. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, a little over an hour ago, an email came from Ariel Ministries to me. Uh, that's Arnold Frutenbaum's uh, ministry. It's worldwide. Uh, and it included, the email included their prayer list. And the opening paragraph that introduced the email said this, uh, quote, on a hillside outside Capernaum, Yeshua taught his disciples and followers to pray. Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 
He also assured them that the Heavenly Father knows their needs. Matthew 6.8, Matthew 6.32. Furthermore, he pointed to the Heavenly Father as the one who provides if they seek his kingdom as their highest priority. Matthew 6.33. Thus, obeying the admonition, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself, is not an expression of a happy-go-lucky way of life, but truly an expression of trust that our Heavenly Father will take care of us as we fervently labor for Him from one day to the next. There may be a lot to worry about with the present economic conditions, particularly in Europe and the spiritual opposition in China and India. Yet Yet the evidence of the Father's working is abundantly clear as aerial branches and representatives seek first his kingdom. Many are reporting increasing interest in and use of Dr. Frutenbaum's materials and translation projects are progressing in a number of languages. Chinese, Gujarati, never heard of it, Italian, German, Serbian, Spanish, and French. God is cracking open doors of opportunity for the China and India ministries. At the same time, the needs, which our Father knows, are great. So won't you please join us in praying to our Heavenly Father? Uh, <clears throat> the, yeah, we don't, I, of course, well, whatever news we're reading, we don't hear about such things, but uh, ministries like this are actually making inroads in places like China and India and even in places like Iran. And, uh, you know, the Father knows our needs. And uh, I think it's, it's wonderful how he starts off with, uh, give us today our daily bread, is that, you know, the Father is going to provide for our needs, whether it's actual bread or whether it's what we need to be sufficient for the ministries that each of us have. And in their case, they have a worldwide ministry that's being provided for. Uh, the same is true for each of us individually, whatever Uh, spiritual gift and ministry and work that you have to do uh, that God has called you to do for the body of Christ and for the plan that he has given you, he is going to provide all that you need. And so none of us have an excuse to say, well, I couldn't do it. I wasn't sufficient enough. I didn't have enough. And that's not true. And and that's what we're going to see today. Uh, the, The give us today our daily bread is actually about contentment because it's not just about bread. It's obviously about needs. And, you know, because we don't just need bread, we also need water, we need air, and, you know, there's a lot of things. We need shelter. Uh, And so the, the provision that God gives through his providence in this petition is... Every day that we pray to the Father that you will provide our needs, we're asking him to provide our needs. We know he's going to, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask, as the Lord makes clear here. Uh, And I think the reason that is is that we're acknowledging that the Father is the one who provides our needs, the things that we really need. And we're acknowledging that every day by asking him. Uh, And so what this gives to us is contentment. And contentment is a marvelous thing to possess. Uh, Contentment means sufficiency. Contentment means fullness. Contentment means I don't need anything else than what I have right now. 
And therefore, contentment means is really the path to joy and happiness and, and those times of really great spontaneous joy that come upon us that, um, that the discontent never experienced. So the world, though, is full of a lack of contentment, and that's a very serious problem for mankind. Because people are discontent, they make terrible decisions. And that's they pursue things that they think are going to give them happiness, but those things are not going to give them happiness. And they make terrible decisions. They're never satisfied. And they hurt themselves and they hurt others. And all because they think that they need something that they don't now possess. And so they search for it. Second Peter puts it this way. They are like unreasoning animals. Uh, so, but it's funny, that's an interesting phrase because no animal really does have reason. Only mankind does. But, <clears throat> you know, we can become like this. We become animalistic. As Paul uh, writes it in Philippians 3, that people become slaves to their appetites. And so it's a pattern of lust, a pattern of desire, a pattern of passion that we think, and why do we have these things? Why do we fall for them? Because we become convinced that they're going to give us something that's going to make us content. So he continues in verse 14, 2 Peter chapter 2, having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Uh, the context of Second Peter chapter 2 are false teachers. And we're going to see that same context written by Paul. Uh, a false teacher is someone who lives in lies or speaks lies. And maybe they don't know it's a lie, but they're deceived themselves. Or maybe they do know it's a lie and they're deceivers. But uh, <clears throat> to live in a lie is to never find peace because lies can't provide anything and falsehoods do not provide anything. Falsehoods have no answers. Uh, they have nothing that fulfills. Falsehoods are empty. And so um, to be content is to believe a truth that God has promised to provide for his own. To be content is to be satisfied with God's provisions. And as we know, each of us have different provisions than others. Some have more, some have less. Some have different kinds of things. And yet, what, and, and we have this issue, which is it's why it's in the Ten Commandments, because the human race does this constantly, is don't covet, don't be jealous, don't want what others have that you don't have. To be content is to be satisfied with God's provisions under his will and not desire other things outside of his will. And so, and that is the key. So this order of petitions in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done, is number three. Give us today our daily bread is number four. That as we live under God's will, we come to find out what he wants for us because we have commandments, we have borders, boundaries. And we know what he wants for us, and we find out what he doesn't want for us. And we are not to desire the things that he doesn't want. 
So when we make that, we say, okay, I got it. I don't desire the things that God doesn't want. And however, is that sufficient to, you know, accomplish it? And the answer is no. And the reason being is because we have the flesh. The flesh of the sin nature will constantly want what God says we shouldn't have. It will not want what God says that we should have. And so we have within us uh, this temptation to not be content and to be deceived into thinking that other things besides God's will is going to give us contentment. Contentment is therefore also hope in the future. I'm not afraid of the future. I know my Father is going to give me just what I need and that is going to be wonderful. You know, what, what, what I need is to do his will. And when I do his will, uh, <coughs> seek his kingdom, honor and worship him, that I know everything is going to be provided for me. And the results of my adoration of God, my worship of God, my seeking for his kingdom, my doing of his will, is going to be, as Jesus said, on earth as in heaven. So within me, my soul, my heart, my mind is going to be heavenly. The things of heaven will envelop me. And that's a wonderful life. And so there's hope for the future. Hope for the future is seeing a confident and bright future. No matter what the newspapers say, no matter what projections are uh, shot at me, there's a, you know that wonderful passage where... Paul says that uh, the fiery missiles of the evil one come at us in Ephesians 6. Uh, and so we pick up the shield of what? Shield of faith. And faith says, you know, these, these things that are trying to scare me, make me worried, make me depressed, are not actually true. Uh, and in fact, when bad things come, there are always things that we don't expect anyway. It's generally the stuff we're worried about never comes to fruition, almost always. When bad things come, it's usually stuff that we didn't expect. So there's no point worrying anyway, worrying anyway, as the Lord told us. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today is enough trouble of its own. Why is my future bright? God's grace and mercy and love. He is going to provide for me. And as I do his will, things are going to... Uh, flourish within me. I'm going to see him more. I'm going to relate to him more. I'm going to walk with him more. My relationship with him, my vision of him, and all that is with him, which is goodness, it's all going to come to me. And that is the promise. It's going to be mine. And as I follow him, and I don't have to worry about the other stuff, Contentment alone provides the platform for spontaneous joy. This kind of joy that I mean is not the kind of joy that people experience continually. There is a kind of joy, call it a happiness, it's almost linked to really to the word contentment, where I'm generally happy. And that's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment truth because of my relationship with God. But then there's a kind of joy that overwhelms me. It's very emotional. And it comes from nowhere. Well, we know where it comes from. But this kind of joy, no one can make happen. I can't say right now I want a real feeling of joy. It's not going to happen. But contented people 
are, are in the vicinity of such moments because they're content. Contented people have their eyes open to what is really important. And when they, at times, they see the things that are important, see God in particular situations, see Him in different ways, there's, a, there's a, a, an overwhelming joy. You, you actually see it in the writers of Scripture where they write, they're called doxologies, where they glorify God. You see it in the, the 24 elders and the four creatures in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, that they spontaneously fall down before the Lord and glorify Him. It's a spontaneous joy. Discontented people never know this thing because they're never happy. They're always worried. They're discontent. They live in the realm of lies because the things that people are worried about in this world are not going to happen. You know, and what I mean is, so think of, are people worried as you read the news or hear the news? Are people talking about the coming judgment of God? You don't hear about it anywhere. Are people talking about the, the about hell and about the, the results of not believing in Christ as their Savior, of rejecting Christ? You don't hear it anywhere. People are concerned about global warming, climate change, economics, wars, and, and you know, for the most part, these things are not important. Jesus told us there would be wars and rumors of wars. None of us are going to stop it. But what we can prevent to each of us individually is judgment by believing in Christ as our Savior. What we can avoid completely is discontentment by following him and believing and trusting in what he says. To be content is also to greet every day with rejoicing and expectation. A good expectation. That's hope. To be content is to live every day with inner peace and joy. Every day, some day, a lot of the days are the same, but day to day, different things happen. We find ourselves under multiple and varied conditions. Uh, some days are monotonous. Some days are errant. Some days are not much to do. Some days are full of much to do. Some days are full of potential worry. To be content is to greet every one of those different kind of days knowing that God is going to provide. And so with inner peace and joy, I confront every day with joy and great expectation, an expectation of victory, conquering, and not being overrun by that which is wrong or lies. And so, therefore, to be content is to trust God explicitly in everything. Trusting Him in every area of our lives. He's smart enough to provide for us everything. He's powerful enough to provide for us everything. In fact, one of God's names, El Shaddai, which is one of his names that's uh, used a lot earlier, early in the Old Testament, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God often called himself El Shaddai. And that means God who is sufficient. The context of El Shaddai is God who will provide. And it's always that. He promises Abraham, I'm going to provide. 
What does Abraham do? He laughs at God. I'm going to provide you an heir at 99 years old. Well, I would have laughed at him too. We all would have. But El Shaddai said it's going to happen. God provides. So give us today our daily bread refers to all of our needs which God alone provides. And we must be satisfied with them. We may want more. Your flesh wants more. When it comes to wealth, your flesh wants more. When it comes to things that are hard, your flesh doesn't want those things. Whereas God's will may want those things. and oftentimes does. Uh, <clears throat> the flesh uh, wants different things than what God provides. And so in this, what this has for us is this constant seeking, searching, fighting, grasping for things that we shouldn't be looking at. We shouldn't even be looking at them, never mind seeking for them. And so that's why we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, I've got three passages on contentment that I want to look at today. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is our first one. But 1 Timothy, just to know something about the letter, it's called one of the pastoral letters, which is 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. These are written to, these are three letters that are written to someone who is a minister, uh, a leader of the church, really, to pastors. Titus had the, that title, and so did Timothy. So it's a pastoral letter from Paul to Timothy in which Paul instructs the young pastor Timothy how to behave and work as a pastor and a leader. But it's also, the whole letter, much of it, is about how the church should run. How should a church be? And he doesn't get into a whole lot of specifics, but he does get into uh, particular things that are of the most importance when you're functioning and running a church. The letter, though, therefore, has at its beginning, its midpoint, and its end, and we're looking at the end now, uh, warnings. At the beginning, the middle, and the end, Paul warns Timothy about false teachers, false doctrines. And these were people who were in the church, apparently. Timothy's at Ephesus at this time, and it's the, so it's the church at Ephesus. And um, he, you know, they, there are people in the church who are teaching wrong things. They're teaching lies. And therefore, Paul, what Paul does with this Instead of, in some of his other letters, Paul will rebuke the false teachers like he does in Corinthians. But here, he doesn't so much rebuke them as he uses the lifestyle and the way of the false teacher to highlight what is right. So he uses them as a contrast. Uh, he uses the false teacher as a contrast to the way that Timothy should be, and therefore all of us should be. And that's here at the end. At this last warning, Paul matches godliness, which is devotion to God, complete devotion to God, what we talked about. We have to trust him in everything. So devotion to God is godliness. And contentment, they're linked. So the prophet, meaning with an F, not, not uh, P-R-O-P-H, uh, in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, we have the prophet of godliness with contentment. 
Uh, And we'll see how this works. Uh, So in this passage, Paul contrasts the attitudes of the false teachers to what Timothy's and all of us, our attitude should be. The discontented teachers teach us a lot about humanity and, and humanity without God. And that provides our background. So look at verse 3, 1 Timothy 6, 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, Greek word here is eusebia. Eusebia means to be well devoted or very devoted to God. So again, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, notice he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, first off, the implication here is that the false teachers are looking for payment. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, gain can mean a lot of things, but in the context of this paragraph, Paul is going to, as he continues, is going to talk about being rich and loving money. And so the gain here in the context of the letter is the fact that these false teachers are expecting payment. They want to get paid for what they're teaching. And what does this show us? Because it shows us, it tells us a lot about contentment, that falsehood will not make contentment and ends up seeking for something else, in this case, money. Yeah, if the false, if whatever doctrine, he says different doctrines. That's what the, the Greek word really is. Um, if these doctrines that they're teaching fulfilled them, why would they want money? If, if this so-called truth was really the truth, and it's well, what does the truth do? Set you free, fills you. Right, provides for you a relationship with the, your maker, then why would you want money? Why would you love money? And that's what they want. You see, falsehood, whatever it is, if I think whatever is going to fulfill me, marriage is going to fulfill me, that's a lie. You know, anybody who's been married a long time are like, you're right, you're preaching to the choir. But young people... When they're first, you know, they first fall in love and they, they're going to marry their sweetheart, they're sure, this is many of them, this is going to provide for them happiness. How about the thought that making a lot of money is going to make me happy? Or being successful at my work is going to make me happy. It will make you happy for intermittently, but it, it doesn't provide contentment, and people find this out. See, why is that? Because it's false. God didn't arbitrarily say, well, let me think what I'll make humans happy with. Right? He didn't like, you know, have a whole hodgepodge of different things and say, all right, I'll make that happiness and I'll not make that happiness. What, are, what is the creation, mankind, what are we happy with? What makes us content? And there's only one. It's the creator. 
the Creator is truth. It's one of his titles. He is veracity. He's truth. It's his attribute. And Jesus told us, it's the truth that's going to set you free. Not money. And Jesus had nothing. He didn't care about money. He gave the money back to Judas, knowing he was stealing out of it. So falsehood, whatever it is, is not going to make for contentment. And the way that you discover this as a person is, you think the thing to make you content, it doesn't, so you seek for something else. And in their case, they wanted to get paid with money. Now, another indicator of their discontentment is their morbid interest in questions. So notice uh, this, they are conceited, understand nothing in verse 4, and has a morbid interest in controversial questions. Now, the translate, translators added the word controversial. It's not in the original. It just says that they have a morbid interest or they dote upon questions. Uh, so, but whether these questions are controversial or not, they generally probably are. But we see here in the context that since they're of falsehood, that these questions have no solid answers. In other words, I have a morbid interest in questions that are never going to get answered. You know, it's like the guy asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? He, he wanted to debate. He didn't want to do anything. And Jesus told him the parable of the Samaritan and then told him to go and do to all people, be gracious and give and sacrifice. Uh, but what the man wanted was to debate. See, if you're just debating about questions that have no answers, then you never really have to do anything. You just talk about it. And that's why they love to debate. It's the pursuit. Plus, you, you, despite the fact that the debate has no substance, you can win the debate. And then everybody applauds you. Right? You're the smartest in the room. You are the wittiest. You are the most cunning. You won the day. <clears throat> and quite amazing, I think, these, these discontented people are scholars, if you will, probably elites, that they imagine godliness of Christianity to be a source of profit. They see Christianity as a moneymaker. Unfortunately, there's a lot in our society who see the same thing. Right? You can in a church you can guilt people, you can use the scripture to smash people over the head, make them feel guilty, and make them give. But they say they fail to see what we're all to see. This is why Paul points them out. They fail to see that the profit of Christianity is Christianity itself, not money, not prestige, but Jesus Christ Himself. The profit to Christianity is to be able to see God, walk with God, relate to God, and have an intimate personal relationship with God, day in and day out. That's the real prophet. The prophet is to be face-to-face with your Lord before you're even home in heaven. And hence, on earth as it is in heaven, in the prayer. That's the true prophet of it all. And so many fail to see that. People say, I'm going to go to church and clean myself up so I can find a mate, get rich. 
uh, or at least get comfortable. And look, it's always a good idea to clean yourself up if you found yourself in the gutter. But uh, just a clean up or a more comfortable life is not going to provide contentment. Contentment has to come from God and God alone. So, now in verse 6, the prophet of godliness comes when godliness alone is the most desired thing. And godliness is Christ-likeness. It's the devotion of Christ. So, again, the prophet of godliness comes when godliness alone is utmost desired. I don't want godliness so I can get money. I don't want godliness so I can get unlonely, you know, married. I don't want godliness so I can get fill in the blank. I want godliness so I can get godliness. I want to know God so I can know God. I want to know God so I can see God. I want to know truth because the truth sets me free. I want to be free, but I want the truth for the sake of the truth. So, look at verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Right? This, is, this passage is often misquoted. It's not money that is the root of evil. It is the love of money. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Or with many a pang. That's a King James, isn't it? Uh, so this contentment, Paul ties to material things. And how do we know it's tied to material things? By this very famous line, we've brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out either. This is quoted by a lot of people, though they don't really know where it is, many of them. But <clears throat> what didn't we bring into the world? Well, you know, all the material things, and we're not going to take any of them with us. So this is just like in the prayer, give us today our daily bread. We have to be content. And if we are content, then godliness is a means of great gain. Uh, you know, and what are we gaining? Notice the word gain. It's used by Paul twice here. That the false teachers think that godliness is a means of gain. Their thought is that godliness is a means of making money, whereas godliness is a means of great gain. But what is that great gain? It's godliness itself. To be devoted to God is to learn of God, to see God, to fellowship with God, to be at peace, to have all the things that people think the other things are going to give them, but to have it truly from the source, from God himself. Uh, in light of the actions of the false teachers, this would include the mental equivalent of material lust. Now, material lust has a mental equivalent to it. And, you know, people don't generally want to amass materials uh, just for the sake of looking at them. And in, and in that case, and I would say tr truly, that uh, people want materials either to feel more secure, that's a mental thing, 
or to be admired by others. They want others to covet what they want. That's a mental thing. And so to material lust, there's a mental equivalent. In the case of these false teachers, they want to argue. They want to, as we said, they're, they dote upon or have this uh, unnatural uh, uh, desire for questions that can't be answered. They want to argue, which causes strife and jealousy and so on. And therefore, they want to be admired and envied. They care about what? Not the opinion of God, but the opinion of others. If I can accumulate a lot of wealth, you know, that's probably the greatest way to have people admire you. I mean, people are admired for looks. People are admired for many things. But when you have a massive amount of wealth, many people admire you and flock to you. And the rich find this out. So in the same way, as our Lord put it, when he used the sparrows and the lilies as an example in the Sermon on the Mount, if we have the bare essentials to live, right, we shall be content. So what does he say? If we have, verse 8, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. That's the verb, uh, to be content, arkeo. And what Jesus is saying here is with a minimal. You have enough to eat and you have shelter. We have to include water. But you have the minimal it takes to survive. With that you will be content. So does he want us all to be poor, you know, uh, living in hovels with just barely enough to eat and barely enough to drink? Uh, No, he wants us to understand that contentment comes from him alone. And if I am alive, I can do his will. If I have enough food in me, in other words, I'm not running around starving all the time, then I can do his will. If I'm not afraid that I'm not going to have enough to eat or enough to drink and I'm going to die, or I'm going to be, I mean, being hungry and dehydrated without water is one of the most terrible feelings that a human being can have. And the fear that comes with it. If all those things are fulfilled, then I can obey his commands. I can pursue his will. I can search out for his kingdom. And I can praise and glorify him. I just have to be alive to do that. And I have to be comfortable enough. And God promises this. That's what the Lord said. The sparrows, they don't have jobs. The lilies, they don't have jobs. But yet your Father provides for them. They don't make money. Your Father provides for them. And he said to us, you're more important than them. So we, all we need is the bare essentials to live. And all of us have much more than that. So the problem is not the amount of stuff amount of food, water, covering, however you want to put it, even money. The problem is not the amount. What disrupts the soul, as Paul says here, is the desire. The desire for what? To get rich. As Paul puts it, it is the love of money. So maybe it's not money. Maybe it's something else. Something else, material. Something else that you think will fulfill Uh, Besides money, probably sex would be up there at the top of what people desire and long for. Only know that because of how much time is spent. They put out numbers of um, every year that this report comes out about 
what websites are watched the most. And pornography is by far the most watched, even more than YouTube, Google, all of them. It's a problem. Uh, and of anything else, uh, wanting to be admired, uh, and, and of course money and what other, or other things that we think are going to satisfy what the flesh wants is to be satisfied in a, in a way that is not a part of the will of God. Uh, so the problem is not how much stuff we have. The problem is our desires. If our desire is for God, then we will be content. If our desire is for anything else, then we fall into the category of the love of money. And the category of the love of money is, as he says here, they've pierced themselves with many a grief, with many griefs. Because money, it's elusive, and it also doesn't fulfill. So, should we all be poor? Uh, No, that's not what we're told. So, you know, this was believed by certain sects of uh, Christianity, say in the Middle Ages especially, with Franciscans and uh, Benedictines, right? Whatever, I don't even know half their names or probably remotely any of them, but... You know, I know that they 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 took bought into asceticism and they became monkish and they they denied themselves and I, you know, it seemed to me that from what I've read that that where there were some of them who had a real right heart for God and chose a path of poverty, and if if you think that's God's will, then then go for it, but if you think that you're going to just by uh, by asceticism that you're going to become content. You know, that's not it. The contentment, for I guess for some people, uh, asceticism, I shouldn't say asceticism, but uh, a denying themselves of certain things is going to bring them closer to God, and they know that. And so you're doing it for the right reason there. But if you're just doing it for the sake of doing it, it's, it's not going to bring you anywhere. When something that promises happiness but can't deliver it, like money, sits in charge of your soul, it becomes your master. And if your master is a lie, then what is the result? As Paul says, we become foolish. And we fall into harmful desires that, that plunge us into destruction. It's because you know God should be on the throne of your soul for every one of us. He is the only one worthy of being on the throne of our soul, not us. And not anything that's a lie. It's not going to, and as Paul says here, it's going to plunge us into destruction. So should we be poor? He doesn't say that. Having riches is not immoral or sinful. If one is following God's will and becomes wealthy, so be it. Wonderful. But they have to be careful because wealth brings the possibility of pride. And so skip down to verse 17. 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. That's a word for pride there. Conceited is fine. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Well, what is life indeed? Well, it's eternal life. It's God's life. 
And notice that they're to in, they need to be instructed. This doesn't come natural to us. Pride comes natural to us as fallen creatures. We have to be instructed not to fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches. And I think what he would mean there is that as you pers- everybody who pursues riches, not everybody gets them. Actually, very few do. So the getting of them is uncertain. The riches themselves are not going to do anything for us. But unless, right, he doesn't say be poor. He doesn't say sell it all. Give it all away. He says don't be conceited. It's the pride and conceit that is the sin, not the riches. And so it's what we do with them. Instruct them in verse 18 to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We are to be generous. And we'll see that there's another place where Paul talks about us being gracious givers because we're content people. We haven't fixed our hope on riches. And therefore, being content, if you needed something that I had, to give it freely and, and with joy. We're to be cheerful in doing it, not grudgingly. So the word contentment, if you go back to verse 6 again, 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Here's the Greek noun, autarkia. Uh, contentment is, in verse 6, it's a noun. In, in verse 8, it's a verb, but we'll, we'll just look at the noun for now. Uh, autarkia has two aspects to it. There's an external aspect of contentment, and there's an internal, I should say in my head, there's an internal aspect of contentment. The first, the external, is having what is adequate and sufficient. So obviously, when we're praying, give us today our daily bread, we really do need food or we're going to die. We really do need water. We really do need shelter, Um, whatever our basic needs. That's about it, basically. But... uh, And so we need those things. So artakia has an aspect of it of being external. So let's see where it's used like that. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Second Corinthians chapter 9 verse 8. So if you look back at verse 6, I know I should have put this in. I put the context in. Look at verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So that's the key to getting rich, right? Not so much. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You should be happy. Grace-oriented, happy. Uh, and then in verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now, see that word sufficiently? That is ortarkia. It's the same word that you see up here on the board that's translated contentment in 1 Timothy 6. So that's why it's, it's really beneficial to have the Greek because if we're comparing words in English, uh, we might miss that. There's a connection here between contentment and giving. 
so what are we to do here? Well, if I'm gracious, maybe I'll go without. Or maybe I'll starve. Maybe I won't be able to pay the bills. If I'm gracious, I mean, it, he doesn't tell us to be stupid with our money and to just, you know, say, well, I've got bills this month, but I'm going to give all my money away to charity. Um, but to how God leads you. But you have to be careful because if we have a love of money, then we'll easily talk ourselves into not being gracious because being gracious should mean that it's a sacrifice. And being a sacrifice would mean that it, you know, has... If I'm a millionaire and I give away 10 bucks to somebody, it's really nothing. It doesn't cost me anything. If I'm the widow who only has a penny and that we see in the Gospels, and she actually gives that, she gave all that she had. Jesus mentions her. She's in the Bible forever because of her graciousness. And each of us have to determine that for ourselves. God doesn't give us an amount. You don't see tithing here. That's an Old Testament taxation. It's not for the church. The church doesn't tithe. As we just read, each one must do as he purposes in his own heart. If my heart has a love of money, I'm not going to be gracious. If my heart has a love of God, I will be very gracious. So what's the solution to my cheapness? Love God. To my miserly cheapness, love God. I have it too. I have it just like anybody else does. That, you know, we see what money we have and we, we don't want to risk it. You know, and we get nervous about it. And do we want to be gracious? And the flesh does not want to be gracious. The flesh wants to hoard. And so, um, yeah. So, th- notice this word sufficiently. Uh, also, notice that sufficiency is modified by this Greek uh, adverb all. Passan, and if you notice how many alls are in this passage, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that you will so that always having all efficiency. And even we're missing one all because it doesn't fit into English very well. But there's a third one in there. But with all, we have all grace, all sufficiency. But then we have words like always, everything. And every, right? So all grace, always having, all sufficiency, in what? In everything, so that you may have an abundance for how many good deeds? Every good deed. What does this show us? It's an all-encompassing, unlike us so often, God never does things halfway. It's all grace, all sufficiency, for everything, for every good deed, always providing it. There's not a time where God says, no, nah, not today, I don't want to. There's never a time that God says, eh, I'm a little nervous about giving to you today. I mean, I have to supply the whole world. Nothing stops him from giving, other than our lack of capacity. But nothing stops him. He, but he gives according to his will. Are we content to say, you know what, God, whatever you have given me, what I have right now, give me my daily bread. And, by, and when he says give there, that's a, it's a command. Give me. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passionate request when it's in the imperative. It's a command. Give me 
today the bread that you have for me. And I don't want any more. I don't want any less. I don't want a different kind. If it's white bread today, it's pumpernickel. I hate that stuff, but I'll take it. Right? We'll do bread analogies. What's your least favorite bread? If it's stale bread, I will eat it because it will, it will suffice. I'll live. If you were truly starving, stale bread would be delicious. But what are we in our pampered lives? We're very picky. You know, when I make bread at home in my bread maker, if you've done this, when it first comes out and it's hot, oh, man, it is irresistible. Um, so, you know, whatever he gives, this is what contentment is. And what this does is it absolutely frees us from all monetary lust, from all material lust. And all of us need that. Now, your flesh is never going to be free of it. Your flesh is always going to tempt you in this. And that's why the Lord, I'm, I would say with confidence, that's why the Lord put this in his prayer for us on an everyday basis. Because we are so easily deceived by material. So easily deceived by the lust for things. No matter what that is, whether it's money or anything else. Now, uh, God says, I'll provide seed for the sower in this passage. People have interpreted this to mean to say, well, see now, if you, (laughs) I've seen this on TV, you know, the televangelist, if you give me $100, God's going to give you $1,000. If you give me $1,000, he's going to give you $10,000. And so it's tenfold, right? And then he'll quote a passage like, give, and it will be given to you. So if you give in the hope of getting more money, what is your love? I mean, it's so stinking obvious. You love money. You don't love God. So hence, that doesn't work. The only one it works for is the guy who fooled you into giving him 100 bucks. So how much seed is the sower going to give us? Or the father, we're the sower. Uh, He doesn't say. But whatever we have, We need to be gracious with it. And say, well, I can't be gracious. I don't have a lot of money. That's why the widow is in in the Gospels. That's why she's there. They are, uh, makes me think of our theology professor at Corbin. Several times he said to the the kids, you know, like there are kids, they're in their 20s, young 20s, that even though they're in school and many of them are there full time and they don't really have jobs, they should still be giving to their local church. They say, well, I don't have a lot of money. That's not, where do you see that in the scripture? Whatever you have, you give. You're gracious with it. And if we are gracious, God is going to provide. He doesn't say how much, but you know the, the real benefit of graciousness is the contentment that it brings, the contentment and contentment brings a graciousness and vice versa because we trust. We trust that God, we enter into God's rest, we trust him. We know that he is going to provide everything that we need without a doubt. So that's the external. The external is the actual stuff that we need. And then there's the internal. And this, the internal is the state of being content in one's circumstances, contentment, 
and self-sufficiency. That's inward. And that's the way, actually, both types are in our passage in 1 Timothy 6. 6. That godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. I'm content with what I have externally, and I'm content internally because I always know that God is going to provide. I'm not anxious. I'm not worried. I'm actually overjoyed because I know I have years on this planet to pursue God's will, to seek out his kingdom, and to glorify him. And by that, I will see him. There's no greater life than that. So we have both types. Now, as I said before, earlier, there's a link of this word contentment with El Shaddai, God, one of God's names in the Old Testament. So going back, we looked at a few of the names. I can't remember. if I don't think I put El Shaddai in the list of names that we did. It was like a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, uh, when you know the opening of the prayer, Our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. Uh, every name of God has a particular aspect to it. It's a particular attribute of God, a character. And El Shaddai means all-sufficient. El is God, and Shaddai speaks of sufficiency. Now, what does God need? Nothing. He has everything. What does God provide? Everything that we need. So notice this passage. This is Jacob. Uh, At the end of his life, he's prophesying concerning his son Joseph. And he says in Genesis 49:25, from the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty. So see that word almighty? That's El Shaddai. It's often translated almighty and it's, it's, it's not really right to translate it that, so it seems. Well, we'll call that and by the all-sufficient one who blesses you. Right? So what, is the, what does the El Shaddai do? He blesses you. The God of your Father who does what? Helps you. He blesses you with blessings of heaven above. Our Father is where? In heaven, of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. So from above and below. And blessings of the breasts and of the womb. Now why breasts? Is because this is a picture of a suckling child. And that God has who gives us, we're like on his breast, his children, and he will always supply us. He's not going to ignore us. He's not going to neglect us. You know, in certain parts of the world, the, most, uh, the, the, most, the biggest cause of death of children is exposure. Because if you don't get the, it's generally with girls. If you don't get the male, they throw them out. They just leave them out. They leave out babies to die of exposure. The Romans did it. The Spartans did it. Uh, And currently, uh, certain countries do it. God is never going to cast us aside. And by this, we should know, no matter what the news says, no matter what the economic report says, if the, the recession comes, no matter what the price of gas is, what matters is, is that we have our Father in heaven who helps us, who blesses us, with blessings from heaven, blessings on earth, and he provides for us all that we need. This is contentment, and this is what we're praying for when we say, give us today our daily bread. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this prayer.
thank you that through you and your promises that we can be content. No matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter what we face, we know that you have already provided the solution and the deliverance and that you have already provided all that we need. May we, Father, not be distracted by things that you have not willed for us, but to be completely sufficient in that which you have willed so that we may rest alone in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.